Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 13. It says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building a great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who carries quarry stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool will consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies his words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, You can be seated. Uh, Real quickly, we've tried to kind of curb announcements to just the need-to-know type of thing. So we have tonight the Friends Thanksgiving. Uh, That's going to be uh, 5 o'clock, 4.30, close to 5. I was close-ish. Uh, but one of the things I just want to keep in front of you, uh, over the years and over the, the last little bit, we understand that we have pockets of missional communities, and at times you're wondering, like, man, I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like to hang out with some of those other people who are not in my MC, or I'd like to spend some time with them, or get to know them, or just sit around and laugh, and, and I don't get to see them every week. Hey, this is for that. Like, that's why we did Shrocks. That's part of why this is here. There's some events for the entire family to get together. So if you've kind of desired to, to know and be with and, and have relationships with some of the other people not in your MC, this is for you to, to kind of do that. So I hope that you go, uh, enjoy it, have a, uh, a great time. I know a lot of people put some work into that. So I hope that you go and are able to 
enjoy it. So uh, before jumping into the text, I, mean, I just want to confess to you, like my heart is anxious this morning. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's like a five-hour energy this morning or a really long text with a lot of Proverbs or a little wild setup this morning, but uh, I'm just going to pray and believe that there is uh, goodness in this word uh, for us and ask the Spirit to do a work in that. Call my heart, open our hearts to be able to hear and ask the Lord to do his work even in just a kind of big and long proverb-filled text. So, uh, Lord, would you draw near to us? Uh, I ask that you calm uh, my heart, calm our hearts together. Let us uh, come forward to your word with a posture that says, teach me. It says your words are better than anything else that we will find. So will you speak to us? Uh, Will your word uh, just encounter the deep parts of the heart that maybe we keep away uh, from you or others or the spirit, Lord, so we come uh, work in us, open our eyes to the beauty of what you've said. Your whole word is useful to us and good to us and teaches and trains us. Lord, may we see that and know that today. Spirit, come and work. We pray that in your name. Amen. So I, I've shared it before. Um, one of the unexpected fun things for me uh, is to introduce my boys to the classic movies of my childhood. Uh, and, and there's interesting things because sometimes you, you're sitting next to them. You're like, oh, I didn't remember that. But then there's other times there's things in it that you really enjoy. So uh, this summer, the boys got to dive into the deep end of the Karate Kid. Not the Netflix remake, like the real, I guess they have some of the real actors, but the real original, the OG Karate Kid. Uh, and it was kind of wonderful. And this text opening up reminds me a little bit of the classic scene from Karate Kid 1. I'm not worried about spoilers, by the way. You've had plenty of time. If you haven't seen it, it's on, it's on you. It's not on me. I feel no, I feel no bad uh, about this. But in the opening movie, you have this Mr. Miyagi, the karate master who's training Daniel LaRusso to not becoming a punching bag anymore. Uh, and he's trying to teach him karate. And so all of a sudden, to, to teach him, he has him do all of these what seem to be like meaningless chores while he's all alone in, in the dark, right? So if you remember Mr. Miyagi's teaching him, Daniel's son, wax on, wax off. He's like, what am I doing? Paint the fence, up, down. He's doing all of these things by himself thinking, man, this old guy is just getting cheap child labor. Like, I don't think he's really teaching me to fight. This is awful that you're making me do these mundane things while the antagonist, Johnny Lawrence of Cobra Kai, is training in a different way. He's breaking stuff, yelling, no mercy, ah, and there's like a large crowd around him, and they're like, yeah, you're so awesome, and they're like cheering him on the entire time. The two ways of training couldn't be any different. There's a vast divide between alone and quiet and unpraised training versus group and loud and cheered type of training. If you don't know, uh, the whole wax on, wax on, off thing did good for Daniel. He won the karate tournament, got the girl for a little while. It was, was kind of great. Um, but Solomon's pointing a little bit, I think, to us, some elements that maybe the karate kids stole under the sun. Some things in our life look like this. The wise things get forgotten and they get put in the corner and they seem mundane and they don't attract crowds and they're not tweetable and they're not going to go viral and they're not sexy, but stupid sure does. It attracts tons and tons of people and foolishness attracts the masses and the attention. Madness and folly are what get praise and attention and notoriety and applause all around us. Yet it is quiet and the wise and sometimes maybe what the world considers the unremarkable that kind of wins the day or wins the fight, at least in terms of eternity. 
right? This is a beauty that we need to understand. In the eternal spectrum, Solomon's trying to say over and over, hey, will you please be careful about planting all of your hopes in, in your flag only in the, in the matter of the immediate? Do not put all of your eggs into the basket of what you get here and now. Would you please look over the horizon with me to the plan of God, the character of God, and what is eternal through the wisdom of God? Will, will you look at that with me? And this text is probably like the hardest one to preach in Ecclesiastes. You're going like, hey, I've heard you say that before. Um, the other texts, I've had other texts that were harder to understand. Like you go before and honest theologians are going, yeah, I don't know what he means. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. So there's, there's some of the texts that are hard to preach because you're not 100% sure what he means. This text is pretty straightforward. There's nothing very difficult to understand, but the challenge is to take this large text and make one succinct idea that, tight, that kind of makes sense. And the reason it's challenging is because of the way that it's formatted. In the text, we have a story about wisdom that Annie started out with, followed by 15 proverbs, right? Everyone knows that lists needs to happen in, in odd numbers, but there's not three, there's not five, there's not seven, 15 Proverbs that you're going like, how do I navigate this? And the Proverbs aren't all even super neatly related in the fact that they don't make a maybe progression of thought. They're like, oh, I understand. They more just deal with the, the understanding that there are benefits of wisdom and there's a ton of destruction with folly. That's what is in it. It's hard to make a neat idea, but what we're gonna try and do is make a statement anyway to show us how to navigate. The statement that we'll use to kind of navigate this text is going to be quite simple. It's just turn to wisdom. I mean, you slow down and hear that for a moment. If the Bible is full of teaching and the word of God and it's for our good and it builds us up and it shows us what to do in the madness under the sun, the call for you and I is, hey, brother and sister, will you, will, will you turn your life to wisdom, not just metaphorically, but will you actually turn your life towards wisdom? Uh, the choices are this, you can be wise or you can be a fool, choose. You and I have that, and we can look around the world and we can see other people navigating that choice. Like, I don't know if you made a good choice. You and I have the same choice. Do you wanna be wise or do you want to be a fool? Which type of life will you wanna align yourself with and will you pursue the things necessary in order to kind of do that? Again, this turn your, your, yourself, turn to wisdom is not meant to be hollow and airy, in, in vague because wisdom isn't something that you fall into on accident. You don't buy osmosis. You don't stand by someone wise and it just kind of sinks in. I wish that would be awesome, right? But that's not the way that it works. And it's not by your genetic makeup or the amount of money that you have. Wisdom is attained on purpose and intentionally through one avenue, right? It, it is a verb, turn to wisdom actually has a posture to it. It has actions to it. It's something that you aim at and you actually put your life in a certain way to do it. So what do we mean by it's on purpose? Uh, your life and mine is full of choices, right? And the choices that you and I make, they, they matter. We're tempted to think that, you know, our choices, they're just a bunch of small things and they don't really they're not that big of a deal, but our choices, uh, they're, they're not small things at all because they don't happen in a vacuum and the choices that you and I make have real consequences in the world around us. They matter a lot. So when you choose to do something, pursue something or value something, what we need to understand is at that same moment, you're choosing not to do something else and not to value something else, and not to pursue something else. So this means that to turn to wisdom in your life actively and intentionally means that you're gonna to have to choose to not do other things. 
And that's going to be a, a balancing act that you're going to have to decide, well, I really want to do that. Okay, do you want to be a fool, though? Like, do I want to pursue wisdom or do I want to pursue? When they say folly, they're saying fool. What do I want to do? There's certain things that if I pursue wisdom, I can't do other things. Are, are you still with me? The, the, the verb, will you point your life at wisdom? Will you choose it? And, and if you have actually chose it, will you walk towards it? Before we dig into the story and the 15 Proverbs, how long do you think this is going to take? Um, I want to lay out the assumption that rests alongside this text. Because if you notice the text, it didn't mention God once. It, it doesn't even mention faith once. But what it's doing is what many books of the Old Testament and sections of the Old Testament do. It's assuming that you're going to read it through a certain lens or with a certain fact in your hand as you read this text. And that is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. That's the way that this is meant to be read. If you don't hold on to that, this is not going to make any sense at all. Wisdom, therefore, cannot be had underneath the sun without a proper perspective and reverence and relationship to God. How do you think the world likes that statement? Right? It, that would seem offensive, and many would go, I don't know if that's true. This text is not telling us that, that atheists or wicked people are all kind of idiots with no brain power. It, it's really saying that the knowledge of a person who does not have a fear or reverence to the Lord, all of their knowledge that they amass is incomplete in some way. It, it's fickle or has a, a kind of crumbling foundation because it is not based on the God of the entire universe. How smart can someone be, no matter all the facts that they gather to themselves, if they deny the creator and the one who's in and over and all things are through? I know tons of stuff, but you don't know the main thing, right? This is what it's telling us about. If we want to turn to wisdom, the next natural question becomes, okay, cool. How, how do I do that? Like, where do I go? Is there a store? Like, do I, do I, like what, what do I need to do to go to wisdom? Where is wisdom curated? Where is it gathered? And the short answer is we turn to wisdom, friends, by turning to God. Seeking the Lord, right? And what are some of the means of this? We seek the Lord through his words. Why do we gather around the scripture and believe in, in exegetical preaching? We're gathering around the Lord through his words. And then we seek the Lord through his son, Christ the king, who we bow a knee to and we align our life. I want to follow you. You are my king. I, you are the one that, that I, I submit to. And we seek the Lord by asking the Holy Spirit to show us the person of God and, and the ways of God. There's more to it than just that, but, but one of the things we have to understand is there's not less to it than that. If your choice is wisdom, if, if that's what you're going, okay, I'm in for that, my choice is wisdom, then the next natural thing that we have to deal with is your choice of wisdom accompanied by the pursuit of God or is your choice of wisdom just lip service? I'd like to be wise. How are you pursuing God to get that wisdom? I'm not doing that. Oh, you'd like to be wise though. Right? This is a question, like, my heart has to wrestle with this. It's asking, is your life aligned with the choice of wisdom, or is your life aligned more with the choice of, of folly? Looking at the opening introduction in the story that are followed by a major point, Solomon kicks off this section by just saying, hey, I've seen this example of wisdom, and it was interesting to me. Under the sun, it seemed like a great example. And what he's pointing out is I saw this guy's life, a real story that seemed extremely important because this guy's life seemed like a parable that happens on repeat all underneath the sun. The story is there's a city filled with dead men walking. 
Right? It's surrounded by a great and mighty king set to destroy it. So a small, not very powerful, not very massive city, all of a sudden a massive king comes around, full army, hey, we're going to destroy all of you. It looks like they're going to die. This little David of a city was small, and it says specifically they had few men to protect it. There's nobody even to pick up weapons to kind of help you. You are in trouble. The language is specific. Little city versus great king, great siege works, great weapons, you're doomed. You're outmanned, you're metaphorically outgunned, you're out everything. But it says a poor and wise man inside the city, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Follow the trail of thought. This nobody inside this tiny doomed city this guy with no earthly or monetary stature, like he, he wasn't a big deal, he wasn't known for his wisdom before this, he comes up with a plan and saves them all. His wisdom does the impossible. They're dead to rights, they're gonna die. His wisdom saves them. Now you'd imagine after that, if, if you're surely gonna die, and then all of a sudden a guy comes up with a wise plan and saves the day and you're saved, like well, what's, what's the appropriate action to that? We're going to name the city after you. Like the next generation of boys are going to carry your name. We may make you king or at least an advisor or somebody of power in the city. Like without you, we would all be lost. And yet Solomon says, nobody remembered any of it. He saved them. A debt of gratitude was owed and yet none was paid. Solomon says of this, but I say that wisdom is better than might. Mighty power comes around the city Surely going to doom it and they're going to die. A little wisdom ends up more powerful than wisdom. Psalm goes, you need to understand this. Wisdom is better than might. The city may not have remembered the man or his wisdom. The city may have been blind to the reality of wisdom's benefit, but Solomon is not. Wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom is greater than strength. If we're going to wrestle with this text appropriately, we just need to sit on that. Hey, do you believe that? And the things going on and the conflicts around us, what is actually better? To be strong, to be powerful, to be, to be feared, or to be wise? This man's wisdom, not only was it not remembered, it was despised by them and his words were not heard. Oh, I would hear you long enough to save us, but I don't want you to speak anymore. The takeaway here is the world doesn't value wisdom appropriately. Right, we put value judgments on things, worth a little, worth a lot, worth a whole ton. Like, I'd give my firstborn for that, right? You just value things that you put on stuff. The world does not value wisdom appropriately. I was joking, Judah. Um, what, what are they trying to say? And I, I sat with a friend in the office, and, and I said, I told him, I said, I think they're telling us money doesn't grow on trees, but folly and stupid sure seems to. The world seems incapable of recognizing or valuing wisdom. And more than that, the world loves to actually despise it. Look around. You see some things, you're like, what? This is that actually at play here. The world does not recognize appropriately, value appropriately. In fact, they actually despise wisdom instead of value it, which leads us into verse 17. The words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Because why? Because wisdom is better. Better than what? Better than weapons of war. He's dropping some, some knowledge here that's interesting to wrestle with. He's poetically saying, okay, shouting words get the attention of people. 
Fools gather around shouting leaders all the time like moss to a flame, confusing loud words with power and wisdom, but true power and might don't need to do that. Though the crowds may feed off and glorify and praise a volume of, of either wicked or, or, or foolish men, wisdom is more powerful than the fool or the weapons of war. Look at the play of words at the end, though. But one sinner destroys much. Wisdom is better than might. It's stronger than might. One foolish sinner can destroy a ton. It's interesting, he's flipping upside down some things. The reframing of power in the implications. Wisdom is greater than the power of the world, but watch this, one sinner can destroy way more than you ever thought possible. Hear him speak to the heart. Be careful, you could be that sinner. It's as if he's turning upside down the expectations of the world. We expect weapons are the most powerful thing in the world. Wisdom's kind of okay. One guy sinning is not going to blow up anything. It's fine. He goes, nope, opposite. Sin unchecked will destroy years and years and years. And your life and your family and your city, wisdom is better. Why is this the gateway to the 15 mini parables that are scattered through chapter 10? Well, I think it's because we need to go into this wide eyes, eyes wide open to the fact that a choice to turn to wisdom probably won't be valued by the world around you. What's the implications of that? The wisdom that you may turn your life towards won't be seen as significant, meaningful, value to them. This may seem like benign or simple, but friends, if your joy and your peace and your sense of self-worth are tethered to what the world thinks, are you hearing me? Then this choice to turn to wisdom is at odds with your sources of contentment and you're going to have a really big problem. A choice to turn to wisdom will simultaneously be, remember, to do and pursue one thing means you have to not pursue and do something else. This is a realization. If you pursue wisdom simultaneously, you're probably going to to leave yourself uh, some power and some significance out in the world's eyes. Are you okay with this? Because some people would go, at that point, I'm out. Why? Because my life is ruled by the fear of man, not the fear of God, which is the opposite of, you can say it, wisdom. Right? You, you turn it upside down and you turn it backwards. As we push into the parables, the first one latches on to the end of chapter 9, where we're told that one sinner can destroy much good. And he goes into depth, like much good and honor, and, and one sinner, one, one bout into to foolishness can destroy much more than you ever thought. Solomon says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Okay, what's he saying here? Okay, imagine this large vat of ointment. It's something used for good. It smells good. It's pleasant. It's valuable. Somebody worked really hard to to craft and create and acquire everything to put it together. Like there's this valuable, amazing thing that had been worked towards for quite some time and it's all been gathered. And he says, hey, understand that if that large vat of ointment that had all of that work and effort and grind and money into it, if it's touched by something as small as a fly and that fly gets stuck and dies, it'll 
rot and spoil that entire vat. All of that work, all of that value, all of that beauty, all of it will be gone. That tiny little speck will destroy that massive vat. See, under the sun, we can easily fall into these sliding scales of folly or sin where it's tempting to begin to manage your sin portfolio. I got a little of this, and I got a little of that, and that's fine. That's like my, right, if you're going to talk about investing, like, that's my play money. Like, that, that's not a big deal. It's okay if I lose that. It's okay if I do that. We, we begin to kind of manage sin portfolios and romance small ones because we're, oh, it's not a big deal. I've got it under control. It's not really going to hurt that much. In that, in that sliding scale, we kind of judge things by how significant we think the sin is and how much damage we think it's going to do. And yet Solomon says, this is a dangerous game to play that will hurt you. Just a little folly, a little sin, what we consider like a a victimless or harmless sin or pursuit, it's fine, it's not a big deal, can be the choice that ends up spoiling something large. Do not play with that fire thinking that you will not get burned. Hear hear this, because this is what you and I both, we just need to like come in together and go like, hey, we're all in this camp we have to stop asking how much sin it'll take to really hurt things. How much sin will it take to make my wife or husband mad? How much sin until my kids notice? How much sin until I break that relationship or I perform not as well at work? Or how much sin until the elders confront me? Or how much sin until the MC notices? Or how much sin until God gets really angry? Solomon is saying this is a question of folly. How much is not the right question? And that sin, when our hearts ask it, and this is confession, when my heart asks that question, my heart needs to repent and turn to wisdom. That is not the right question. Which leads to the proverb that the wise man's heart inclines him to the right, while the fool's heart inclines him to the left. Clayton texted me and goes like, is that going to be political? Like, don't do that. I'm like, no, no, I'm not. He said, I bet someone is in election season. I said, I bet they will. There's a slippery slope element here. I'm trying to slow down and not just make this a million Proverbs and go like, let your heart wrestle with us. We so easily get tricked into sin management. A little folly, a little sin. It's fine. I've got it under control. I can stop tomorrow. It's not hurting these relationships. It's fine. But we miss that a fool's heart gets bent more and more and more to the left. So left is a term, not for politics, of rebellion and wickedness and judgment and destruction. That's what they mean by left. And right is a term for protection and authority and goodness And righteousness, there's stark difference between what they're talking about here. The heart that does foolish things will be prone to do more of it. Why? Because when you lean to the left, you lean more and more. You following me? Like one choice, it's easier to make another choice. It's easier to make another choice and another. So the question of what can I get away with or how much is, is okay is the wrong question. The question of wisdom is where do I want my life headed, left or right? Not how much before I get in trouble or how much before I blow this up or how much before they notice. It's where do I want to point my life at? This is what the wise man and the wise woman ask. Towards good and righteousness and upright or towards wrong and destruction and evil. 
each choice you and I make points us more in that direction. This is, again, turn to wisdom, not metaphorical. What is the end of much folly? Besides me leaning more and more to the left, he says, a person who has much folly, even when they walk down the road, they lack sense. Okay. Forrest Gump. Right, this makes me think of Forrest Gump, like Tom Hanks. Stupid is as stupid does. When a person leans into foolishness and they embrace it and they lean more and more and more and more to the left, though the world may not recognize and pray wisdom, we can all see a fool when they're walking down the road. It's not hard to see a person who's given themselves over to folly. Solomon, he's not trying to be mean. He's just talking about the the natural progression of folly. Small bits sneak in. It's not that big of a deal. I've got it under control. And then it destroys things. And then it ends up swallowing a person and it ruins all that they do. And folly begins to just kind of saturate everything about their life. Folly isn't a slip of mind. It's not an accident. It's a way of life that if you lean all the way into it, it swallows and destroys everything. It's plain as day when someone gets kind of wrapped up and lost in, in folly. Verses four through seven. Speaks about when folly isn't just present in everyday people, but what happens when folly uh, spreads to politics and the leaders? Solomon is gonna try and show Folly and foolishness and sin are bad enough when they're in your, your life and, and just you're doing them, but then they have an even a, a other result when they get kind of dropped into the public sphere over people leading and kind of guiding entire cultures. He shares how under the sun, he sees this thing, when a leader embraced folly by putting a person of folly into a high place or a position of authority. What's he saying? Okay, guy gets in charge, And and maybe he's a smart guy, but he puts a fool in charge in some other area, maybe because he's got to pay off of a debt or do a favor or or play some sort of political game. When when a guy puts a fool in charge, what ends up happening is, is mandated madness ends up coming over the people and the entire people have to deal with foolishness all over them. It's, he's saying like, authoritative foolishness gets put over people and then we've got to deal with the crashing waves of foolishness all around us. His example again is when people of folly get placed in charge, he says that slaves get put on horses and princes walk on the ground like slaves. He's trying to show how things get turned upside down or backwards, how literally a fool in charge will do the opposite of what they are supposed to. I think a great example in, in like we, we could have had like point A through Z of this probably if we looked around, but I think an example that, that, that I've seen quite clearly and spoken of in, in, a, in a good bit is when, when fools get placed over positions of authority in education, not the teachers, because I see a lot of teachers are not actually like this, but when fools get placed into, into creating things in some cities and, and leading into dealing with education, what I've seen is fools decide that kids need to be indoctrinated, indoctrinated or taught morality, not reading, writing, and arithmetic. What happens there? You flipped it. No, no, no. Mom and dad teach the kid what is right and wrong. You teach them to read and how to multiply. Like these are different, but when a fool gets put in the position, like, no, 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 the parents would do a bad job. I need to teach them the way to see the world. They can graduate without reading. Like, I, yeah, I don't think that's what we were supposed to do here. Again, I've not seen that or experienced that in any teacher I've ever dealt with. 
I've seen a lot of top-down things that try and push that on entire systems, though. I want to be super careful there. It's a reversal of the point. It's turning things backwards and upside down. Verse 8 through 11 then give more insight into how folly may seem fun for some, but it actually breaks things and makes life way harder. He uses the easy example. In folly, the one who digs a pit falls into it. In folly, the construction worker breaks through a wall doing demolition and he gets bit by a snake. In folly, the rock quarry worker gets smashed by the stone that he's been working to pull out of the ground. In folly, the logger gets wrecked by the tree that smashes him that he was going to harvest and make some beautiful building out of. These are examples that all show that folly or foolishness end up hurting the person who walks in them all the time. This is a good way to say it. When a person embraces folly, accidents happen a lot. All of a sudden, all of these things, these bad worst case scenarios, they just, I don't know how it keeps happening. It keeps happening because you're a fool. Folly makes a lot of accidents happen. Right? Not my words, Solomon's. He's, he's got a little sense of humor in part of this. Remember, this is poetic language. Solomon says this, okay. If the iron is blunt, imagine using an ax or something like that, and one does not sharpen the edge, you have to use way more strength to do the job. A life of folly may be sought out uh, because it seems fun or seems like it will be praiseworthy to the world, but in the end, using a dull ax to cut wood is absolutely awful. Have you ever used a wrong tool, an unsharp knife, an unsharp act to, to try and do something? You want to say bad things? You want to act like a fool? You want to throw the axe? Maybe you hit your foot? Like, it's a terrible situation. This is what he's saying. Please understand, you're going to make life under the sun harder than it needs to be by embracing folly. Wisdom may not be praised by others, but... Friends, folly will make your life so stinking hard in ways that it doesn't need to be. Have you ever met a person who's always in crisis mode? Always, thank you. You're like, I don't know if you really wanted an answer. Fair enough. The person who's always in an emergency, one catastrophe after another, I don't know how it happened. One fight after another fight, one calamity after another calamity over and over and over. It's just like, oh my gosh, I can't keep track of what went wrong now. Psalm is just going, a fool does this to themselves because they make foolish choices. The world doesn't hate you. You're not cursed. You make really bad choices and the fruit of your choice is a lot of calamity. So when you look around, the, the drunk fool wrecks his car, gets his license taken, owes thousands upon thousands of dollars, and maybe loses their job. The angry fool probably burns down every relationship that he ever has and gets punched in the mouth because he doesn't know when to be quiet. The lustful fool throws up his marriage, it destroys all of this work, and probably leaves the kids without a mom and dad at home because they wanted to seek images that they shouldn't have been seeing. All of a sudden, things blow up all the time. Why? Because you chase foolish stuff. The contrast is great. Folly blows up your life and makes it harder while wisdom helps you succeed. Maybe it doesn't make you rich or powerful or tweetable, but wisdom helps you not make choices that blow up in your face all the time. Right? Self-inflicted wounds happen when you don't choose wisdom. Right? He's just trying to like, be just really honest about the way that we do things and how we navigate and what some of the, 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 the results of our choices are. Now, he's not trying to smuggle in a prosperity gospel here. 
He's just saying, hey, man, when you reject the creator and creation, the good design that God has made, when you embrace foolishness and recklessness and godless ways of life, and you really run with it, it's going to be like a grenade that blows up in your hands. And you're going to go, what happened? You, You ran into foolishness. One author I read said that our words, and they use them, are the acid test of wisdom. And this is where all of us go like, uh oh. Our words show what's underneath the facade or image or any of the things that we project. I really enjoy the show over the years. The boys watched it with me uh, called Forged in Fire. And these guys go in and they make knives. And one of their favorite things is to make Damascus patterns. They take different metals and they do like their ninja smithing. And then when, when the knife's almost done, you're just like, oh, cool, it looks like a piece of metal. And they stick it in this acid etch for a minute and they pull it out and it's like, whoa, you see all of these patterns and all the types of metal in it. You see what's underneath. He's just going like, this is like, our words. Words show what's really underneath of everything, if it's folly or wisdom. Think Matthew 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. Your mouth will out you. The things in your heart at some point will come flying out of your mouth. Maybe just the people closest to you hear it but they will come out. Like a toddler with a a secret, the mouth cannot contain the heart. So it is wise men and women use words to win favor, bring peace, cause good, while fools' lips consume them and bring about destruction. You want to know a hidden proverb that maybe you didn't know was in there? Proverbs 18.9. A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. When you talk, people just want to punch you in the face. It's in the Proverbs. Look at the full picture of Solomon's painting of a fool. They use their mouth or their words in this certain way that, guys, he's really good at pulling out the way that we're like, it's not a big deal. A fool use words, because they just kind of dabblish in foolish. They're like, I probably shouldn't say that, but I'm going to anyway. Like, they just kind of dabble in foolishness at the beginning, but then they slide into evil madness. Remember even earlier in the book when he talked about this weird thing about laughter, how when we pursue laughter and the ha-ha in life, all of a sudden we begin laughing at things that we should be weeping over? Same thing. A fool ends up using their words. That probably wasn't the smartest. It's okay. All of a sudden they're destroying things with what they say. Why? He says partially because the fool multiplies his words. He doesn't know when to be quiet. Guys, let our hearts hear when just sometimes you're like, why did you say that? Why didn't you just shut up? Like this, this is, these are things that like, maybe it's just my inner di- dialogue. When you talk and talk and talk, he goes, hey man, you don't know the future, so there's only so much that you should really have to say, right? And yet you just keep going and going and going. He says, your words end up spreading like a forest fire. They destroy so, so much. I mean, it's just a harmless thing. He goes, no, 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 it breaks a lot. The way that we use our words make things harder for ourselves. And we go, why? Because he shouldn't have said that. Then the transition goes from the use of the mouth, it covers a lot. I think this one equally, just with the words, will also kind of probably 
get in deep into the heart. He begins to talk not only about your words, but how you use your time. You're like, I wish you wouldn't have done that. A mark of folly is when a person doesn't operate in congruence with the proper time of things. Right? Ecclesiastes is a proper time for her, and he gives all the list. There's a time when certain things should be done and a time when things shouldn't be done. And he gives an example. The example is a king that feasts in the morning. This is a picture of a ruler who's meant to work. Do, I don't, what do kings do? I don't know. Do, do kingly stuff at like 9 a.m. He's supposed to fix things and make systems and protect and all of that. But he's like, you know what would be fun? Bring out the wine, the fattened calf, and like 9 in the morning. And he's like throwing it back, just partying in his like king robe. You, sh- you should be working. What are you doing? You can think of King David for this example. David, when he was supposed to go to war, supposed to secure and protect the kingdom, He decides, yeah, I don't want to do that right now. What does he do? He stays home. What does he do while he's home? He gets bored, goes out onto a roof, sees a woman who's not his, takes her, gets her pregnant, kills her husband to try and uh, not let anybody know about it and destroys tons and tons and tons of stuff. The idea is a person who parties or seeks pleasure or seeks escape when they're lazy, when they should be putting in hours, or when they're absent, when they should be present. Say that one again and let that hit our heart. When they're absent, when they should be present, this is a mark of a person ruled by folly. They won't work, and they feed their appetite when they should be disciplined. And they walk into this just life that just over and over the mistakes begin to happen. So there's, there's multiple reasons why folly is an absence of fearing the Lord, which is an absence of wisdom, right? And the first that we just need to understand is our work and our discipline is pre-fall, right? So if we're sitting here going like, I just can't wait for Jesus to come back. My life's going to look like a Corona commercial. I'm just going to sit back forever. Work was pre-fall. It just it wasn't supposed to be jacked up the way that it is. So to reject work and responsibility and providing for your family and doing those things is rejecting God and the mandate that God has placed over all of creation. Second, when our hands are empty and we get idle, we love to turn to idols. When we get bored and we hide in laziness or escape or lethargy, When it gets really quiet, we end up chasing some really jacked up things he's telling us. Solomon says the further implication of this, okay, we get bored and we can tend to go off the rails. Solomon says the further implication is the roof begins to sink and it begins to leak when you're marked by this type of folly. A fool doesn't know when they should work and they become lazy and they become a sloth. And when they do this, the outworking is things begin to break down, things that ought to have been cared for. And the laziness one day turns into the fool's emergency one day after another after another. Hey, there was a time that you're like, you should have maintained that, you should have done this. You're like, yeah, 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 but I'm going to drink and I'm going to have fun instead. Or I'm going to chase this and I'm going to do this. And then later you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. You're like... Hey, bro, like, you didn't look at your roof for 40 years. Like, it's probably going to break, man. Like, there, there's a diligence here that he's talking about. 
Verse 19 and 20 seem at odds with our views of idolatry when Solomon says, bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens the heart, and money answers everything. You're like, is that a typo? He's talking more about the outworking of a lazy sloth, a person who does not do the things when they should be doing them. Not only will their life and the general things around them just begin to break and degrade, but here's what he's saying. They won't be able to buy bread, which is what? Daily necessities. The regular stuff that you need, you're not going to even be able to buy them. Why? Because when you should have been working, you're doing whatever. And then Solomon says as well, in the wine that gladdens the heart, some of the good things that are to be enjoyed and rejoiced and having fun with friends around you with, you're not going to be able to have that. Why? Again, because you're lazy when you should have worked. That's why he says that money answers everything. Is there things, you're not going to be able to buy your necessities, you're not going to be able to enjoy good gifts like wine, and you're not going to even have money, which is the currency to buy the things that you need in life. He isn't tracking uh, in a way that says money is all that you need. He's saying if you're lazy, you're not going to have money to buy even anything that you need. So what's going to happen? You're going to end up depending on everyone else because you feasted at nine when you should have been working, crying that you had an emergency one time after another after another. Solomon would rewrite the script about poverty in a way that the world would not think was super kind. His point is, though, some people make their life really hard because they don't know how to use their time. They either seek pleasure when they should work or they're too lazy to work. And this is a mark of their foolishness. He's just trying to teach us every person without money isn't a sad story. Some people are just sinful and it's the cause or it's the effect of them not wanting to to work. He's not afraid to say it because it's the reality of the world. The last parable, hopefully I haven't lost you, we're getting close. The last parable about folly is a heart that is stuck in a position of the scoffer. The negative Nelly, always accusing, always cursing, always condemning, always judging, always kind of having insight on how you didn't quite do it right. Solomon says, okay, notice how To control folly isn't just to make sure that you don't curse people out loud. He says the wise person defends their heart and mind as well. Why? Or how? By not letting the inner dialogue in their head curse and give people the business all the time. You know that thing inside of you? Like, well, I didn't say it. It was sure rolling around in that head for a really long time, though. A wise person even does battle in their heart and in their mind to not make sure that, or to make sure that their inner dialogue doesn't absolutely eviscerate all the people around them and also does not curse them in the privacy of their own home when you didn't think they were listening, right? Because like, well, I didn't say it to their face. Yeah, but you and your wife and your friends talked about it for like a year. Okay, what's he getting at? Why? He says, don't do this. Why? Because some winged creature may hear it and tell everyone. You're like, what? I think he's being a little bit facetious. If you and I can't use wisdom to protect our heads and our hearts and our mouths, even behind closed doors, then the cynicism and the biting critique not only will sow itself into our heart, 
but it's only a matter of time before those seeds sown will come out and produce a harvest in the world around you. Right? Wisdom battles to keep the mind and the things that you say behind closed doors on an above reproach side so that you don't kind of destroy your heart and destroy other people and have it come flying out on inopportune times. How many times do you hear someone say something like, I didn't mean to say that? And you're like, the inner dialogue's probably been going on in your head for a year. It's been there the whole time and you just kind of romanced it long enough and then you accidentally let everyone know what you've been thinking for a really long time. Keep your head in your heart, and what you say in a good space so that a fly of bitterness doesn't come and destroy the whole vat of the heart and dishonor you. Be careful. At this point, the whole matter just ends. Done. Blake's going to preach chapter 11 or part of it next week. Whole new theme. There's no neat closing. There's no like, hey, here's 15 applications for the 15 parables that I gave you. It just... Ends. Story, 15 parables, period. Which leaves us wondering, what do I, what do, I do with this? How do I navigate this? And, and why I, I dropped it ahead of time. Well, we remember 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture. Not just the gospels. Not just the New Testament. Not just the parts that we think we understand. Not just the parts that we like. All scripture is God-breathed and useful. Guys, we gotta keep telling ourselves that over and over and over. The breath of God has spoken this to us for a reason and therefore it's useful to what? Teach and rebuke and correct and train, right? So to teach, think building up to, to help you in the future and then to correct and rebuke, to kind of chop down when you've gone the wrong direction. It's for both of those so that the servant of God may th- be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God speaks to you and I to teach us, correct us, so we can walk in the world in wisdom and be thoroughly equipped for all the works that he has for us to do. If this is the word of God, we need to kind of open ourselves up to go, hey, what would the Lord through Solomon, what what do I need to understand? How would he teach me? Or maybe what would he correct? What... What would Solomon several thousand years ago be speaking into that your heart goes like, oh. Right, maybe one of the parables lands a little heavy on you and it turned in your heart. Maybe you've been playing around with sin management. You got that portfolio running, you're like, it's not a big deal, I got it. It's, you know, it's fine, other people are doing worse stuff. Maybe you started leaning a little bit to the left and the left and the left, and you're like, man, I don't know how I like, got so far over this way. Maybe life has been a constant state of emergency, and the Lord is showing you, like, I love you, son or daughter, but you've been making some foolish choices that have done that. Come, come out of that. Maybe you start guarding your heart, and your mouth has begun to kind of show it. Maybe your words have started causing fires and they're breaking down relationships or causing distance or causing difficulty when they should be used to to build up and remind what is good. Maybe you've seen that like, hey man, I I don't know what's happening. Just like daylight savings happen and I've kind of said I've been depressed, but I'm just not using my time wisely anymore. I find myself just trying to escape or seek pleasure or or just, I I don't know, I just, I don't want to be motivated to do anything. Maybe laziness and folly has begun to kind of emerge. 
Friends, I don't know if any of those parables connect at those points. But if they have, I think our play, if we're accepting that all scripture is God breathed, is that you would ask the Holy Spirit to help you with that. Hey, Father, help me. I think your spirit has been the one who kind of pointed out. How, how do you know if, if God's trying to prod? If you hear one of those and you have that inner like, oh, that's, that's probably the Lord doing that. Like, wrestle with the Lord. Hey, man, I, I think I've walked into folly there. I'm not even 100% sure how I did that. Lord, will you help me? Will you walk me back into wisdom? Will you help me see you? Will you help me see the way that you want me to go? Uh, I, I don't even know how that happened, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm firmly in one of those. Help. For all of us, the constant battle. Even if one of those parables didn't kind of like get you, you and I need to understand the constant battles and are not falling to, fall, to folly and foolishness. It is everywhere. Right? Wisdom is calling. The Lord gives it, but so is foolishness. So we want to seek the words and the will and the face of God the Father so we don't walk in that. Going to God again and again and again, just saying with a humble heart, reframe the way I'm seeing the world. Reframe the way that I see you. Reframe the way that I see work or the church or my mission community or my sin or my desire or my time. Help me see you again so that folly doesn't end up driving this bus into the ditch. There may not be a neat application for you and I. The play may be just to agree and say yes and amen. Wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord. Lord, help me see you more. Let me see you. And what does that do? It sends us back to the table, doesn't it? There's only through Christ that you can know God. To not have a paralyzing, you either have to ignore God or have a paralyzing fear of God. It is only through Christ that you can relate to and have a proper fear that understands and reveres the Lord properly. So as we come to the table once again going, Father, I need to see you. I need to see your ways, your pursuits. I need to see what you've done. The only way I can do any of that is because Jesus has paid with his body and blood for me. So you take the bread and you cut in the cup and you go, even if I've been kind of walking in some foolishness or been in autopilot kind of doing some things that maybe shouldn't, Lord, you've paid for that. Help me see that I'm forgiven. Help me see that I'm not meant to walk in that folly. Again, I love you and I'm thankful and you are patient and you are kind. The table is where we recenter ourselves that we can fear the Lord properly. We don't have to be marked by a life of foolishness. Man, you guys can come back up. We'll read 1 Corinthians real quick. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread... You drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, as we worship and we sing and we pray, we get to come to the table and take and be built up again. Father, you knew all that I was gonna do ahead of time and you've still paid, you still loved me and you still have brought me into the family of God. Let me see that, let me align my life around the wisdom of God and what you've done. Thank you for what you've done. You don't have to be a member to take, but we ask that your Faith be in Jesus and hope is that the, the table will be a place of just memory. God, you've done something good. Even when I'm distracted or I'm tired or I'm weary, you have been so good and so kind. Help teach me. Reframe all things in light of you and who you are. We stand and you pray with me.